1983, WXPR 91.7 hit the airwaves for the first time. This is a Northern Voice, 91.7, WXPR Rhinelander. Welcome to WXPR, bringing public radio to Hodag country. Over the past four decades, WXPR Public Radio has brought unique music, local news, and impactful programming to northern Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. To celebrate our 40th anniversary, WXPR founder Peter Norgren is taking a look back and sharing how it all began. This is part four of five of WXPR, the story of how it started. I'm Peter Nordgren, and this is the WXPR story. Part 4. In the previous episode, I talked about how White Pine Community Broadcasting went from a set of incorporation papers and an idea to a small but working organization in the Northwoods of people who wanted to bring a community public radio station to the area. In the summer of 1980, we obtained a $20,000 planning grant from the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. And Mary Kay Shear and I set out to uh, do the uh, development and planning and uh, resource gathering that were necessary to bring the vision to reality. We had a big task ahead. We would have to raise more than $35,000 as match for an NTIA construction grant. We would need to file application with the FCC to build an FM radio station in the non-commercial band. We would have to find a place to put the tower for the station and the transmitting facility. And we'd have to find a studio building if we could. We would also be applying to uh, be in the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's Public Radio Expansion Program. This is the program I mentioned earlier that was managed by my acquaintance, Bob Thomas. And we hoped that we would get funding uh, through that to do the next phase after our uh, planning grant had run out and further develop the organization. With all of this, We'd have to continue building the uh, community that we had started. I've recently heard community radio described as an organization that builds community using radio as the medium. And that certainly seems to fit what we did during that time. At least we were using the idea of radio. We started getting members. We started at the very beginning with uh, small donors, people uh, donating $10, $15, $20 to uh, build the station. We started having concerts. We were able to do this by tapping into a network that had been created by Skip Jones, a musician down in the Gresham area. Skip was having house concerts of uh, musicians that were traveling between um, the Twin Cities and the Milwaukee or Chicago area. And through our connection with Skip, uh, we were able to uh, get some of those musicians to uh, make a new stop in the uh, Rhinelander area. Usually we would have uh, Nicolay College as our location for these events. But we sometimes took them other places as time went by. 
to Manaqua or Eagle River or uh, even the Boulder Junction area. In February 1981, we held the first White Pine Jamboree. The name and the general idea came from KAXE, which had Jack Pine Jamboree, a monthly live show from the Itasca Community College Auditorium with local musicians. We decided to make ours an annual fundraiser and scheduled it in February, when there was not much else going on. We packed the Nicolay College Theater. Lots of musicians and their friends and their fans came, and we raised about $1,000. It was such a success that we needed a bigger venue, and future jamborees would be at James Williams Junior High School. In the summer of 1981, we had to move. I was getting married and was giving up my apartment at 610 Mason Street in Rhinelander. We still didn't have any money for rent, but we were very fortunate to have a friend in Dewey Lindstrom, a business owner in Manaqua. And Dewey said, you can move in with me temporarily. So our office was moved to 8613 North US 51 in Manaqua. The building that Dewey had there, where we operated out of for about six months, has since been torn down and replaced with a different building, which was torn down again, and now there's a third building there. But it was our home for that short but uh, critical part of time where we uh, actually got the funding necessary to build the station. I had attended a uh, workshop that Bob Thomas put on at the public radio conference in the uh, early spring of 1981. At that conference, Bob Thomas told us, one day you may get a phone call from me, and I'll be saying, are you sitting down? And if you hear that, you know that you got the grant. In June, I got a phone call, and it was from Bob Thomas. And he said, Peter, are you sitting down? And that was the good news that we would be accepted into the program and we would be receiving a $67,000 expansion grant. We were selected in the third and, as it turned out, final round of the CPB public radio expansion program. There were 14 stations in all selected. WOJB also received a grant, and we shared in this program with others in places like Sacramento, California, and Bismarck, North Dakota. Could we have done it without the CPB grant? We could have, as KAXE did, but it would have been much more difficult. Our search for a place to uh, build our tower was probably the biggest challenge that we dealt with. We had to find a place that, first of all, was land, uh, and we didn't have any money to buy land, so we would have to uh, lease land, and we hoped we would lease land for uh, a very small fee. That land had to be found in a location that was uh, accessible to three-phase power. Uh, that's a higher-level uh, power supply from the power company in the area. I spent a lot of time uh, driving roads following power lines and uh, looking for suitable sites and checking land ownerships. The land had to be in a place where we could get the approval from the Federal Aviation Administration 
to build a 400-foot tower, the height we hope to have. That's the height that uh, our model, KAXE, had, and the height that WOJB was building over in Sawyer County. The search took me to a lot of different places. After we had found that we were not going to be able to uh, use the Channel 12 tower, the first location we looked at uh, was a uh, potato field just to the east out in Starks. That field was owned by the uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison. And I eventually ended up talking to the dean of the uh, College of Agriculture in Madison. But because of their potato research, they were not interested at all in having any uh, new structures built on that potato field. The next place we looked was farther to the west, actually just to the west of McNaughton off of uh, Fawn Lake Road. There was a piece of county property there that looked like it would be suitable. And it looked like uh, Oneida County would allow us to use that property, possibly at no cost. However, that property turned out to be not a location where we could build as high as we wanted to under FAA rules. The third location that we looked at was northeast of Rhinelander, uh, probably about five miles up Highway 17 toward Eagle River. This location was owned by Consolidated Paper Company. And I remember going to their office in Monaco and talking to the management there about whether they would let us build there. The answer eventually was yes, that they would uh, allow us to build the tower there. They wouldn't charge us anything for it, and they would even clear the land so that we could build the tower. But there again, we ran into uh, FAA obstacles and would not be able to build the height of tower that we wanted. We started looking in the sugar camp area, looking at land up there west of Highway 17 that was owned by Frito-Lay Corporation. Uh, once again, we had a uh, potato field, uh, certainly a suitable place, and it looked like we would be okay with the FAA in that area. So we started finding connections, if we could, to uh, Frito-Lay Corporation. There weren't many locally, and ultimately we ended up trying to communicate with the uh, Frito-Lay ownership at their headquarters in Dallas, Texas. We would send them letters, and generally we wouldn't get responses. We would try calling and wouldn't find the person who was in charge. Ultimately, I called up the public radio station in Dallas and asked, do you folks have any connections with Frito-Lay? And the manager there said, no, I'm afraid we don't. We've never quite made a connection with them. After weeks of working on this, we finally came to the conclusion that things were not going to work with Frito-Lay. Time was getting short for us, though. In fact, time was short on uh, all fronts. We had filed the FCC application I think specifying the uh, Frito-Lay location, and that was pending at the FCC in Washington. We had filed the application for the NTIA grant. In order to get the funding, 
our application had to be complete and ready to go at the FCC. And at the FCC, they needed to have confirmation that we were going to get the grant and had the funds to build the project. With the match, as things worked out, we were able to use pledges from people who were closely associated with the project. Pledges that were backed up by assets that those people had, such as property or investments that they had. And we documented those things and provided them to the Department of Commerce. And that was sufficient to show that we had the match. The tower problem was trickier. We finally decided that we were not going to get anywhere in time with Frito-Lay to uh, make the project go. In fact, at one point, um, after working hard to get the attention of this large corporation, we suddenly discovered that we had their attention, but not in a way that we wanted. I had a call from the uh, head of the educational broadcasting branch at the FCC saying, why is Frito-Lay Corporation calling us up and asking us about your project? <laughs> I had to explain, and uh, they understood that we were pursuing the property for a tower site. But we had to get this solved, and the way it was solved eventually came in a rather unexpected, but ultimately very uh, happy way for the project. A friend of the project, uh, someone connected with Roger Davis, lived in the Sugar Camp area, and they knew that we were looking around Sugar Camp, and they said, if time is tight, you need to go to the Lorbetsky family. Tony Lorbetsky was the uh, chair of the Oneida County Board. He was also chair of the Nicolay College Board. He was a well-respected person in the community. And he owned a large uh, farm right across the road from the Frito-Lay property that we had been looking at. We went to Tony and said, we need to get an agreement to build our tower on your property, but we won't ever do it. We will find a different place for it. We're working on it still. But we need to document that we could if we needed to. He brought in his son, Adrian. Adrian at that time had a private law practice that was based right on the farm there. And talking with Tony and Adrian, we eventually worked out an agreement and they understood that we needed it to document the project and uh, uh, that it was our intent to continue working to find a different satisfactory location to build our tower. We had to go to the Sugar Camp Town Board and tell the Town Board about our project. And I'm happy to say that they were in support of it. Once we had done these things, we quickly had to submit materials to the Department of Commerce and the FCC, the FCC to modify our application to put the uh, new location into our application. And we needed to let the uh, Department of Commerce know that we had made that change. And I will always remember quickly faxing those materials to uh, uh, those respective departments out of uh, Dewey Lindstrom's office just a few minutes before the rehearsal dinner for Debs and My Wedding on September 4th of 1981. I think I was five minutes late to the, the rehearsal dinner. 
to do this. You've been listening to WXPR, the story of how it started. New episodes are released Fridays online at WXPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts.